Welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the creator of Afterlife Inc. and one-fourth of Big Punch Studios. And I'm PJ, and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars, as well as the writer of a number of audio plays and comics that you can find in places. Yeah, go do the work. Go find go find my library. You can't put it all on me. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, um you need to keep adding to to that PJ like, you know, uh, Renaissance man, uh wit, lover to all. Um oh, Hang on, hang on. Hang on. Lover to all. Yeah. That who have you been talking to? <laughs> <laughs> I heard tales, PJ. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, PJ, um, I don't know if you feel the same way, but it feels like, in an odd, an odd way, like we're coming home. This issue. Oh, it really does. It really does. This uh, this week, we spent the last three episodes looking at um, the Midsummer's Nightmare miniseries, uh, which was great. We really enjoyed it, but um, there was no Grant Morrison or Howard Porter involved. But they are back this week. We're doing a story by the the OG JLA creators it's like uh we have this one restaurant in uh, the town where i live oh I, hey pj do you remember restaurants do you remember like going places no i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> no. okay imagine a, a bizarre parallel universe where you could leave your house and and go do things what, um, <laughs> what is this science fiction nonsense <laughs> um but no there's this one restaurant in uh, the town where i live and uh every time we go there i always 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 order the duck noodle soup and it is incredible and i i'm so like ivy i've lost count of the number of times i've eaten that one dish and i love it so much and i hmm. know on the menu there are other incredible things i know there are wondrous new things that i've never tried and you know a couple of times maybe i'll be daring and i'll try something new and it is good and i enjoyed it and i'm glad i'm glad i went there but I always come back to that duck noodle soup. And what I'm saying, PJ, is this is that duck noodles, duck noodle soup. Like, it was nice to try something else off the menu, but I'm, I'm glad to be back in familiar territory. Well, it is, but in a way, it is also something different. It's, mm. it's, it's duck noodle soup with a twist. It's a duck noodle soup, only when they bring it to your table... There's a whole Scotch egg kind of floating in the middle of it, <laughs> and, and you look up a Scotch egg, and, and you look up and you catch the eye of a chef like through the little window at the back of a restaurant, and he just nods slightly, and 
you know, the two of you know, this is special. He's he's given you a nice little bonus, an extra. So, PJ, as as our food metaphors have alluded to, what's going on here? What 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 exactly? What the hell is going on this issue? PJ? So, what we're doing today um, is we are both jumping forward and backwards in time, as is our want. So our first our first four issues of JLA that we covered were issues one to four of JLA. That just makes sense. It just makes sense. It's it a really great place does. to start. Yeah. After that, we didn't do issue five. We jumped back to Midsummer's Nightmare, which was published before issues one to four of JLA and was essentially the formation of this version of the Justice League. Um, a story that does tie into a lot of what will come later in Morrison's run, but that Morrison wasn't involved in. Mm-hmm. What we are doing today is we're doing a story that uh, is set after Midsummer's Nightmare, but before JLA 1 to 4, but was published like around the same time as JLA 9 or 10, I believe. <laughs> yes. Uh, and if that sounds confusing, it's because it is. Yeah. Um, of course, if, if you're holding the comic, it makes perfect sense. Like, you you just look at it, you recognise the team, you, your brain fills in the gaps, basically. You can kind of work it out. But I'm looking at my handy-dandy spreadsheet here. And so the time is September 1997. So as you say, we are chronologically, uh, calendar month, we are somewhere around the end of Volume 2, the start of Volume 3. And this is a very, very, very busy month for both Grant Morrison and DC Comics because in this month of September 97, the same year I'm starting secondary school, hmm. they release Ahem, uh, the final issue of American Dreams, the first issue of Rock of Ages, the JLA Wildcats crossover, and JLA Secret Files and Origins, all in the same month. Uh, we should clarify, JLA Secret Files and Origins issue one. Oh, oh, sorry, you're right. Yes, which is what we're reading today. That is the main story thereof, because these DC in the late '90s did put out a lot of these Secret Files and Origins books for all of their main, all of their main titles. Basically, had a spin-off uh, where they have this book, which had a main story that recounted the origin of that character, and then some fact files and some disposable backup stories. Uh, they were big books, uh, good. 48 pages i think they came to about normally did it count as a as a series in its own right so if you collected issue like issue four of secret files and origins would be say the flash or no um because it it was each series it was its own one so you had like we're looking at jla secret files and origins one and then there was also jla secret files origins two and three later on and you had aquaman secret files and origins one batman secret files and origins one so it was a lot of issue ones, all under the secret files and origins, but with a different character each time. And were they all done by the creative team that was currently working on that series? I believe so, but don't hold me to that. So was it? I, I'm just kind of trying to picture the scene now because, as we talked about in previous issues, a lot was happening in both DC and comics in general, in kind of around 97. Like, Marvel was soft rebooting all its heroes with Heroes Return. Uh, you know, DC had this grand re- reimagining of the JLA. So, I don't know, was there just something in the air? Were, would you reckon, D- were DC trying to 
remind, reintroduce, kind of bring in new readers by... Because we take it for granted that everybody knows, say, Batman's origin. But was it just a fun exercise or do you think they were genuinely telling it again for people who didn't know? I think it was a bit of both. And I think it was a way of other people to put a different spin on it. Like, for example, I'll always... One of my favourites was actually Green Lantern Secret Files and Origins Issue 1, where they do it in a very different way to the rest. They play it as if... It's narrated by Guy Gardner at the time he was going under the identity of Warrior. Oh, God, And had yes, the bar, Warrior. Warriors. And they play it as if you're in the bar having a conversation with him. And he goes right from the origin of Alan Scott through, all the way through all five at the time Green Lanterns oh, God, up to Kyle Rayner. He does every Green Lantern. He tells you the story of all five Green Lanterns. And it, it's a really nice little issue. Um the Superman one is basically Batman investigating Superman's origins to try and figure out why Superman is the way he is. And then it just ends with them having a cup of coffee and a conversation together, which is quite nice. But then other ones are just straight retellings. Um, but I, I think there it was a way, there's so much history to it. And obviously they've had all the different reboots and things through the crisis and, and all of that. But it's a way to sort of solidify what the present day origins of the characters were for both yeah. new and old readers, I guess. Um, be- be- because... Um, to 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 generalize massively, but DC is the is the company and the universe of the hard reboot. Yeah, like to my knowledge, with I don't think Marvel has ever done a true hard reboot. Like, th- yeah, the- I think the closest they've come is the more recent Secret Wars, and that was more of a soft reboot. Yeah, like. Uh, and and even you know in the nineties when they did the heroes reborn, that was in in universe that was an that was a thing. Like all these characters have literally been reborn in a new universe with no memory of their previous lives. Um, and as you, you I think you said PJ, there were, if that had worked out, they were never going to bring them back. Yeah. That's incredible. I can't believe that. Yeah, but then a year later they did come back. So. But it was just back to the same universe, and they were the same characters. Um. But DC, by contrast, this is where some of my... I may be betraying some of my wooliness and some of my knowledge here, but 1986, if I'm correct, that was Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah. And that was the big, and the first of its kind, really, the big hard reboot of the DC universe, where they collapsed all the multiverse and all the different versions of the characters which existed over time. They collapsed them into one post-crisis continuity and that became gospel from then on like they didn't they like they essentially retell the origin of everybody at that point yeah that's that's when you get batman year one um you also get john burns uh superman man of steel that retells superman's origin uh you get george perez on wonder woman which goes into her origin as well um and some really good books that come out of it but then yeah that was the status quo for dc uh I think for about seven years or seven or eight years, and then they do Zero Hour, which is a soft reboot. Uh. Oh, no, that's that's interesting. Remind what happened in Zero Hour? Was that the? Oh God, what does happen in Zero? Um, the... Broad so, strokes, uh... PJ, for 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 the layman. Uh, you're I, mean, talking I, to. I own this comic. I've read it multiple times, and I can't. It's really so. Um, Hawk and Dove. Dove has been killed. Hawk somehow has become the all-powerful Extant, who's a bad guy who's trying to reboot the universe but he's actually unknowingly working for parallax who is hal jordan former green oh, lantern yes. 
Um, and he's trying to reboot the universe so that Coast City's not destroyed or something. And essentially, Z- Zero Hour did some was designed to do some minor cleaning up of issues that Crisis was uh, had left them with. <laughs> um, it just made things worse because right. it completely screwed Hawkman up. <laughs> um, Hawkman, they couldn't touch him for about 10 years after Zero Hour until Jeff Johns figured out a way to bring him back. But that's why there's almost no Hawkman in the 90s in DC Comics. So, so what, So there was a bit of a soft edit to the universe at that point like were certain origins or characters kind of shuffled or changed around the 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 one that really i can't remember a lot of details to be honest it's so complicated zero it's only like four issues but then every title also had a zero issue released in the middle of their runs to tie into zero hour um but the one i do remember is at the end of zero hour Guy Gardner, his his warrior look is suddenly changed from armored to the weird tattoo look he has yeah and there's no explanation just he stood there suddenly looks different and he goes hey i look different and it's that <laughs> sort of thing that happens right okay because um because deus ex machina kind of waved their hand and said like I've, no no no, this is now how things are i've got a feeling and i might be remembering this wrong but i've got a feeling that it's thanks to zero hour that suddenly batman was thought of as an urban myth and not a real person uh, in Gotham, I think that's a really? zero hour thing. I think. My God, that's that is fascinating. <laughs> the thing, the, and again, I don't get, to, I don't get too deep into like a tangent here because I know I'm very guilt, guilty of that. But the the whole thing about Batman is, yeah, and the thing that comes up time and time again is it like, is he real? Is he a myth? You know, is he, um, is he right in the head? You know, yeah. that's the thing which is always leveled at Batman, like. Oh, you know, Bruce. What if you're psychologically damaged? What if you're, what if you're no better than the criminals you're you're facing? And time and time again, Batman's sanity is called into question, which is fine if Batman existed in the real world. Yes, because then you would question the sanity of of a very, very, very rich man dressing up as a bat and punching people. However, Batman exists in the DC universe where superheroes are a known thing and where there genuinely are terrifying superpowered villains monsters creatures from beyond time and space like it is not an act of insanity to become batman in the dc universe i think that's something that creators latched on to from i think it's probably two people who are responsible for that and that's frank miller and tim burton because i think there's definitely an element of that in dark knight returns um and then it's, I feel like it's the 89 Batman movie that Tim Burton directed that really is the first time you get into Batman as an urban myth. Yeah. Um, and then that film and Batman Returns, like that film is the one where the Joker compares the two of them as being very similar. Um, yeah. And Batman we- has the line, I created you, you created me first, because of that weird retcon where Joker killed his parents that I've never really liked. Um but yeah, I think Miller and Burton are the ones really responsible for that whole one, he's an urban myth, and two, he's insane. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? And I guess kind of like they're the it's interesting that the two stories that may have cemented that idea are both in a weird way an adaptation of the core Batman kind of story. Yeah. And and because yeah, because it's like if you do a movie, you can't 
explain all that incredible backstory of the DC universe. You can't explain the wider context. So, so yeah, something like you know something like the Nolan movies, which are so down to earth anyway, um, for, for the most part. Um, <laughs> it's like yeah, of course we can question Bruce's sanity because he's the only person in the world doing this. But like literally, if you were friends with Superman. You know, like why? Why wouldn't you? It just makes so much. Yeah, sorry. It, I, I, it's like the Batman paradox, which is always in my head. Like <laughs> he's actually the sanest person in the DC universe. I would say. I think we found the title of your Batman story there, John. <laughs> the Batman paradox. <laughs> um, and yours would be, actually, he does do a lot for charity. Please stop going on about <laughs> about it. Yeah, I just do that. That's the title. And then the rest of the story is just blank pages because I've said my piece. <laughs> PJ Montgomery, I've said enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, PJ, should we um, should we actually dive into this um, curious little story? Let's do it. Uh, so this story is uh, Starseed, um, the secret origin of the new JLA. Mm. Uh, written by Grant Morrison. Oh, and Mark Miller, actually. This was a co- do you know what's weird? Adventure. Do you know what's weird? I only just noticed that as well. Yep. Sorry, Mark Miller. That's so, yeah, um, written by Grant Morrison and Mark Miller. Pencils by Howard Porter. Inks by John Dell. Colors by John Kalish. And letters Ka- by Ken Lopez. Yes. Yeah. The the gang is all here basically. And this is the Secret Files and Origins issue that's different because this is very much telling the origin of this version of the League. It's not going back and doing the origins of the Justice League. Is the no. origins of Morrison's JLA. Yeah, and I think if you were trying to track the actual origins of the JLA, is it is JLA Year One? J- that's the Mark Wade one, is it? Yeah, Mark, Mark one, Wade year? and Barry Kitson, I think. So, is that generally considered canon at this point? At this point, yes, um, I believe that's canon up until Final Crisis. Yeah. Kiggs, the, the the moral here is to is to not try and keep too much <laughs> too much track of this. Like, I think the moral here is if someone comes to you pitching a story with the word crisis in it, tell them to bugger off, <laughs> run a mile <laughs> for God's sake. Um, but yeah, so um, as you say, this is the origin of Morrison's JLA, the the return of the Magnificent Seven, if you will, and we open in Blue Valley, which is. A place which I believe, and PJ, I'm going to I'm going to refer to you here. This is canonically the Flash's hometown. Well, I think it's Wally's hometown um, at the start of his solo series as the Flash, like the series that started just after Crisis. Yeah, I think Wally was based in Blue Valley at the beginning of it, but I'm not overly familiar, so I can't give you a straight answer on that. You know, I would believe anything you said anyway at this point. Um, it's Wally's home city. Thank you, thank you, PJ. <laughs> okay, so we uh, we open in Blue Valley. It's nighttime, and a crowd, a worried crowd, has assembled because looming above us is a skyscraper, and kind of fused half in, half out of the building, almost like it kind of teleported in. Uh, is a giant star-shaped structure. 
or spaceship or something. With it's lots it's of... definitely mechanical in nature, isn't it? When you look at the design there. Yeah, but at the same time, it has like a ton of like gross biological matter kind of like growing off it in like tendrils and kind of like spreading across the building. I would describe it as sort of algae-like. Yeah, like it's 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 gross basically. It's it's very it's very odd and alien. And the police are trying to keep people calm. Helicopters are circling, and the Flash is there, and he's talking to Officer Stan Lee. Yes, that is very much Stan Lee. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, why not? Like Which, it just. Why he's cameoing, although, you know, it makes me think of his cameo in Teen Titans Go to the Movies, which is one of the greatest cameos he ever did, so. I confess, I haven't actually seen that one. Oh, that's your mission before we do our next recording, John. Watch Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Okay, I will I will make a note. Um, but when uh, Stanley, the uh, eternal, omnipresent watcher, is uh, here moonlighting as a police officer, uh, he, he basically says, Hey Flash, uh, sorry to drag you here. Uh, but, you know, oh, he says Blue Valley doesn't have any super people since you packed up and moved to Keystone. So it's where Wally used to be and now Wally's in Keystone City. And was that reflected in his series as well? I think so. When I Certainly when Mark Wade was writing his solo series, he was in Keystone by then, I believe. Right, right, okay. So clearly this cop knew, uh, knew uh, Wally back when he was like Kid Flash or Flash or whatever. And is putting a call saying, hey, uh, sorry to bother you. Do you mind popping over? Because we've got this big, weird thing which has teleported into one of our buildings. Yeah. And yeah, um, Flash is pretty chill about the whole thing. Uh, and he basically says, yeah, no, you know, relax. Uh, UFOs materializing inside office blocks uh, it just happens to be my speciality. Um, nice bit of bravado there from Wally. Yeah, Wally is, it takes a lot to kind of rattle Wally. Like he, he he's very just comfortable in every situation. I think it's that nice nice reflection that Wally is the one of these heroes who's been doing this since he was a child, mm. and you know he's an adult in presumably his early twenties by this point. Uh, but he's 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 experienced. He's grown up doing this, and he knows that he knows he's got this experience, so he he can afford to be confident. And with that confidence, PJ, uh, he races off into the building. Uh, where there's more algae green, uh, there's 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 definitely an HR Geiger vibe actually to the uh, the the biological stuff once you get into the building hanging from the ceiling there. Yes, and there are well again okay just flat out horror scene. There are people shuffling around with well for lack of a better word a face hugger style starfish clamped to their faces so these things are they're really cool i love these they're they're so grotesque they're they're these weird green starfish with one big eye just in the middle of where the starfish's body is and they also have a green membrane between each arm so that they can just cling onto these people's faces um yeah it's grotesque and i love it now i was i was gonna kind of like avoid spoilers as such but i don't believe this issue ever actually names the thing they're facing well uh i think we'll we'll table that till the end shall we 
Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll put a pin in that because I, I want to I, I want to probe your um, encyclopedic knowledge here because yeah, this is this is interesting to me, and um, I'm wondering if a reader at this point would instantly be going, "Oh, oh, oh, I know what this is," or whether they would be confused. I don't know, but yeah, basically, um, yeah, tongues of facehugger zombies walking around. So Flash. Uh... He's in communication with the police. The uh, Stanley gave him a, a headset, um, so he's reporting back what he's singing. It's, it's what he's singing. He's not singing. This isn't the musical episode. What he's, he's very seeing. Happy. It's very comfortable. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he says he's seeing these these creatures clinging to the office worker's face. There's no sign of, of a pilot of the UFO. And while he races through the building, uh, bursts into a room, and is accosted by an army of these starfish facehugger things. Yeah, which um, one of which clamps to his his face and he screams, uh, which leads to a very nice transition to the JLA satellite, twenty two thousand three hundred miles above the Earth. So right away, if we didn't know this was a a back in time kind of story, but this predates the previous volume of JLA because yeah, they're back in the old base which we saw being destroyed by the Hyper Clan. Those gits. Those swines. No, you love them. <laughs> PJ, um, name name a hyperclan. I knew you were going to do that. Name a hyperclan member. Not, a mortal. Not, not a mortal. Yeah, Protex. Yes. Okay. No, okay. Not Protex. One more. Uh, Zoom. Zoom. Okay. Yeah, good work. <laughs> They're not coming I'm, back, John. Get over it. I may, ex- I, may, I may strike again, but when you least expect it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and we see the, uh, the destruction of uh, Blue Valley on a big screen. Somebody is watching. The The whole city's on fire, um, and these starfish things seem to be covering the faces of every single citizen. And it's talking. It's saying, I am the probe, he is the conqueror, you are the spaces yet to be taken. And there's a whole monologue about how it's conquering and it's coming and... There's nothing that anyone can do. The world is going to be conquered. And it's uh, it's mouthpiece. It's it's sort of the person who is communicating all this to us with a starfish on their face is the Flash. Yeah. Um, and again, kind of really just driving home the whole horror of it. Like we see the Flash with this thing latched onto his face and it's, yeah, oozing. it's, just, kind of, it's just oozing. It's just kind of like seeping out of him. And um, yeah, a, a finger presses pause on a remote and um yeah we we see the jla standing around a table and superman puts down the remote and says we've got a problem here and this is classic cape and long-haired superman god bless that Uh, which is which of course is weird because chronologically howard porter would have gotten used to drawing superman without his super long 90s hair so he had to dip back into that well to find the energy to bring back those luscious long locks, basically. <laughs> now, PJ, here's a question. This is the secret origin of the new JLA. Yeah. And they're all chilling around a table. Where's Metamorpho? Uh, that's covered in a moment. Oh, oh, good. I'm glad you're paying attention. I've forgotten about that. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so we have, um, well, the Magnificent Six. We have Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman... Green Lantern, Aquaman, and Jean Jongs. And I guess we can assume this is their first gathering after the events of Mig Summer's Nightmare. Yes, I think so. Um, 
So we get into a bit of conversation here where Wonder Woman basically says, look, an entire community has been taken over and we're just standing here talking. To which Batman says, no, no, no. They've already... And Batman writes, writes out, spells it here as... Um, this creature has already overcome one of the most formidable metahumans on the planet. Which is right, because if you think about everything Flash can do with his powers, he is difficult to stop. Yeah, it's 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 easy to it's easy to underestimate the Flash as as being just another quick guy. But yeah, as as in like a previous volume, we saw him punch someone using infinite mass yeah like he's scary powerful and batman being batman knows it so he's he's basically saying we need a strategy we can't go in because one they've got flash on their side and if they've got flash on their side there's nothing to stop us being taken over just like he was well yeah i mean even if you are as strong as Superman, if Flash can move at light speed, he could just conceivably just run up and slap one of these parasites onto your face. Yeah. Kind of say how much I love Batman's pose here. Yeah, he's just sort of sat fingers together against his, uh, just in front of his face, looking thoughtful, not actually uh, engaging in eye contact with any of the other members of the League. He's, He's sort of, he's with them, but on his own in a way. It's a beautiful little shot of him just... Yeah, kind of like lit from behind. Like there's a little bit of light coming through the open space window, and <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just brilliant. Like I, I feel Howard Porter is very comfortable at this point with drawing all the characters. Yeah, like, I agree. He just he just seems to be enjoying himself. Yeah, they they look. This feels much more natural to him than than they were in Volume One. If he's he's got a handle on them at this point, very much so. And. But still, I don't know if it's ever so, ever so slight childishness where he 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 still can't quite bring himself to fully engage with the team. Where he's there, he's present, so I think that means he cares. But he is at ninety degrees to the rest of them and staring at a wall. Yeah, because he's cut, Batman. <laughs> but then we cut to this is this is the point you were raising earlier. Superman says uh, that he's Batman's right, but he's uneasy about them taking charge without consulting the Justice League. And John says, there is no Justice League. Metamorpho and the present team were asked by the UN to vacate the satellite this morning with a new temporary JLA. Can I just say how how much I love the fact that he's Superman and he feels guilty yeah. about, about treading on the toes of the JLA. Yeah. Like, just completely unaware of the fact that if he turned up, nobody would question for a minute what he was doing there. See, what I assume the chronology that happened here is uh, Midsummer's Nightmare happened, the League saved the world, were recognised for that, and so the UN go, well, you should go be the Justice League. And then the Justice League went, there's already a Justice League. And they went, who? Yeah. Metamorpho, Nuclon, Ice Maiden? And then the UN went, who? <laughs> so... <laughs> I, you know, I hadn't really thought about that. Like, I does the UN have any authority over the JLA? Do you suppose? I, I think they did. Um, I think as part of the whole um, the nineties Justice League, Europe, oh, of course. And international yeah, yeah. task force, all that stuff. I think the UN were involved. Yeah. If I'm honest, if I was say Nuclon, I, I, I'd be glad. <laughs> I, I really 
would have felt that like I'd be I'd be kind of punching above my weight here. Well, you this know. is why I love the final panel on this page, because there's clearly some shade being thrown here. Aquaman says, I doubt they'll be happy about that. Some of those people aren't bad at all. So that's like, some of them are okay. The rest of them are rubbish. But some of them are okay. Like Metamorpho, he's quite good. And then Batman he- just says, harsh times demand harsh decisions. They're just going to have to live with it. And he's clearly smiling. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it's petty, but it's also true. Like, it's yeah. also like massively true, and I'm just happy for any scenario in which I see Batman smile. Like, yes, you know he. Look, they really are the best of the best. Like sometimes you just can't argue with quality. But while they're throwing shade at, at the current or previous incarnation of the Justice League, they're suddenly then interrupted by the arrival of someone else. Yes, and uh, yet another green character because. Uh, DC absolutely loves characters whose primary colour is green Uh, phasing through the wall is the Spectre now I love it when the Spectre shows up because one he looks ridiculous and that's awesome and two just the 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 nature of this character is so bizarre he's so powerful yet so restrained or constrained rather and this I love the Spectre. He's just brilliant. Yeah, because in the context of the DC universe, and you might have to correct me if I'm wrong here, PJ, but there is something called the presence, yeah, which is as close to an idea of a, a single monotheistic god that the DC universe gets, I believe. The presence is basically like the creator of the universe. And we're going to get into that a lot more as the series goes on. <laughs> yes. Um, and there's a... It's, it's quite biblical. It, it, it kind of... It walks a line between being overtly biblical and the opposite of overt, so subtly biblical, in that... It's a bit Old Testamenty, yes. where the, the presence is, is is like an absent presence. It is outside the universe. In fact, I believe it's separated by the source wall. Yes, I think which so. Which is the wall at the edge of the universe, which is also, I can't believe I get to say words like that on a regular basis. <laughs> that is such a cool concept. And, and the spectre is said to be his wrath. He is the spirit yes. of vengeance. <laughs> so I believe in the context of the DC universe, Jesus was a previous interpretation of the mercy of the presence. I think this is canon. And the Spectre is the opposite of that. So there is another character. I I can't remember their name, but they're they're like, for lack of a better term, they're the modern-day Jesus, basically, in the DC Universe. They are the, the Spectre's equivalent, but the spirit of mercy whereas the Spectre is entirely God's wrath, basically. And you is that about get, right? Yeah, I think so. And you do get a lovely moment in a second. First of all, he just comes in and says, ignore this crisis, let people die. I forbid you to form the new Justice League of America at this precise hour. So he's basically saying, look, could you wait till next Tuesday and form the Justice League then? Hey, like, there's a, there's a spaceship coming. Like and and you know there's like nine really memorable dudes on board it. So if you could just wait like uh, a little bit, <laughs> you'll get to deal with them soon. But then Superman asks the question on whose authority, and the Spectre just looks up and says, "Who do you suppose?" And it's brilliant. I love that moment. I it, it, it's interesting. Like I I I 
always find fictional universes where there is a single undeniable omnipresent god is always are always a little weird to me because it's like you're dealing with a as in literally in this universe there is a being which is it is all powerful it is all watching it is it, it is infallible ineffable that sort of thing like it, it it's always weird to me like it, the the dc universe is quite kind of varied but it does deal with bigger weirder more fundamental concepts than i think the marvel universe does like the Mar- marvel universe is very much like it's all shades of gray like very much like there is a multiverse there's different dimensions there's asgard there's the negative zone all this kind of stuff and dc has that as well yeah but then we also literally have hell and heaven. Like, yeah. we have actual physical places where a biblical kind of god lives as well. It's always it, mad to me. It is nuts. Because, yeah, anyway, sorry. So that's just my, my side little rant. <laughs> but um, uh, Jean Jongs is basically like, well, uh, are you really suggesting that we kind of look the other way while this monster consumes Earth because that's what it's threatening to do. Um, and uh, yeah, um, the Spectre says, well, look, then it's this creature is mistaken, basically, because the people who believe they are in charge down there are already planning a way of dealing with this infection. And um, yeah, basically, it, it looks as though the US military are going to nuke Blue Valley. Well, that's it. The, the Spectre very much goes between here. His dialogue really shuffles between the the concepts of this this wild alien creature that's so old it predates the very concept of evil, and then goes tactical nuclear strike. That'll deal with it. So it's just these these two different things meshing. The this old primeval being that that is is rushing through space to conquer everything, and then I've oh, just hit it with a nuke. Yeah, that'll work. Um... And, you know, classic zombie movie logic. You know, there's always... You've always got to nuke something at the end of it, basically. Um, yeah, and Kyle's like, yeah, but what about Wally and all those people kind of stuck down there with a face hugger? He actually just calls him a face hugger, which is yeah. nice. So he's culturally aware. Um, and, uh, yeah, what's going to happen to them? And the Spectre just very casually says, well, look, they'll die. You know, um, the town of Blue Valley will be... will be erased but so will the threat. Like, this will be solved, only a lot of people will die in the process, and if you choose to involve yourself, you will only complicate matters. And Superman being Superman says, well, we're going to do that. And then um, Spectre just says, step within my cloak, witness the path to the future, and they all just run inside of the Spectre? Yeah, the Spectre, you know, at least has the decency to uh, conjure up a bit of smoke to hide his kind of green speedos which he normally wears yeah it's just green pants and a cloak that's his oh and and his and his little shoes don't forget oh his yeah little... his little boots and his little gloves <laughs> his little boots and gloves and um yeah suddenly we are in blue valley at the jail area there and there are yeah the zombies kind of point and look at them and it's all very day of the dead and um yeah Kyle's like I've got a bad feeling like uh he's you know what do you think he meant when he said we shouldn't involve ourselves and yeah i think superman understands what's going on he says well look we're as much at risk as the flash was but 
hopefully, if we work together, that'll give us the necessary edge. So Jean says they need a strategy, and Wonder Woman very quickly just says, split up, tackle it individually, it can't react quickly enough if we attack from different directions, which does make sense. So that's what they start doing. But also, zombie movie logic, Split has splitting up ever worked for anyone in a movie? Um, well, it works for Batman sometimes, but... <laughs> Well, Batman is, as in many things, Batman is the exception that proves the rule. There needs to be an asterisk on every question. Would this, has splitting up ever worked for anyone? Asterisk, unless you're Batman. Yep. You know, it's, yeah. Um, but yeah, but we see Zombie Flash and yeah, he, he goes, systems primed for metahuman presence. They're here. So yeah, they were expecting them. And uh, at which point the League, Flash seems to be in a room in an office and the League burst through the walls basically wonder woman superman green lantern and aquaman just just smash the walls up sean calmly phases through a solid bit um and superman gives the flash three seconds to surrender and then starts with his heat vision if i may i feel giving the flash three seconds to surrender was perhaps a bad decision yes for the flash to do a lot in three seconds that's like giving him 15 hours to to think about it (laughs) And, um, yeah, the Flash seems to be acting like the spokesperson here. I guess he just got elected um, for yeah. the crazy starfish because he apparently he, he raises his hand and a ton of them kind of like surge forward. And he says, these spores have been genetically programmed to seek out and conquer superpowered beings. So, yeah, they, they were prepared and the League are attacked by them. You see... Green Lantern screaming as a as a uh, starfish clamps over his beautiful crab mask. So that's a shame. We don't get to see that anymore. And Batman <laughs> basically just goes, don't look at him. Just cover your faces. You know, that's a simple thing to do. And the scene then shifts and suddenly everything's being narrated by the Spectre. And he basically tells us Metropolis was the first to fall. And we get a montage of images of, of the League being controlled by these starfish conquering the planet. Yeah, like kind of raining, raining death from above, like, you know, laser vision just ravaging the world. And uh, yeah, like it turns out turning the Justice League into its weapons were the, basically the last thing this thing needed. Like they, they are basically Earth's greatest weapons and now they are under its control. So you get a moment where... Uh... The Spectre says that there's an alliance is forged between the remaining heroes and the surviving villains, and you see Nightwing shaking hands with, uh, I believe, King Cobra? Yes. Um, it's, it's a Cobra. Yeah, it's DC's Cobra person. Um, but then in the very next panel, Batman's leading an army of super-powered starfish people, and Nightwing is one of them, uh, along with Supergirl, Robin, Steel, Impulse, Catwoman. Um, and Spectre says, Earth fell within 36 hours. Yeah. So yeah, end end of the issue. Well, PJ, it's been fun. Uh, oh no, wait. Oh, does, sorry, your, no. does yours not have another page? Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a tiny bit more. I um, we now see. Uh, well, we see the JLA uh, on other planets. So uh, I believe this is Ran. Yep, you get Ran and Thanagar uh, name checked as well as Tamaran. Basically, all the uh, planets that aliens come from in the DC universe, each of which has a hero on Earth, um, you see the League conquering, and then even that's not enough, and so they start travelling back in time and conquering Krypton and Oa and worlds in the past until the League 
with these starfish on them have basically conquered all of reality in every time. And then it's just the last panel is the spectre saying, all because you did not heed my warning. Oh, and PJ, I guess there is a, a very quick line here where the, the spectre does say that the star conqueror was hungry for more. Oh, yeah, so he does. Mm. Hmm. It's the first time it's given a name. There you go. Also, this is one of those things I... Do you know, this happens a lot in, in, in comics where you've got a team of heroes, and it's always suggested that if that team should ever go to the dark side, they would be unstoppable. Yeah. And yet, when they're the good guys, there's always a degree of peril as to will, will they succeed? Well, it's because when they're the good guys, they've got the moral compass to hold oh, back a little right. bit. Yes. You know, I've often thought that caring about people was, was a, a weakness, like a massive weakness. That's why and I J- don't do and, it. And JLA taught us that. So. Yeah, I, that's why I don't care about people, John. <laughs> and so, kids, you know, read, read, read superhero comics. You'll learn things. All you listeners, oh, I hate you. I don't care about you. <laughs> this is a lie. Please keep listening. I love each and every one of you. Um, so uh, just as PJ's comments were from a strange, dreamlike state... Um, <laughs> I ran so, inside the Spectre and I hated everyone, so I ran out of the Spectre and then I was fine. So we, we emerged from the Spectre's gaping cape... Uh, in a cloud of smoke, and the JLA are suddenly back, and that was all a vision. It was all an illusion. Few, few indeed. Uh, Kyle is a bit rattled, and uh, he's still Wonder the Wo- new guy. I think that's fair. He's still the new guy, yeah. And but yeah, Wonder Woman says, okay, like yeah, he was showing us what would what would happen if we don't do as he asks. Like this is basically a horrible moral dilemma. We either let a whole town die. Or we get involved and doom an entire universe. And I love the spectre here again. Just uh, allow the military to obliterate Blue Valley or interfere and cause the end of all existence. I can see no dilemma here. How many times has the spectre turned up and just just steadfastly chosen to see a situation in terms of black and white? Yeah. Like there are only ever two choices to the spectre. But that's it. He, he's... You get a moment here that's pure Spectre followed by a pure Batman moment because the Spectre just says, you know, it's a few thousand losses, that's acceptable. And Batman says, no loss is acceptable. I'm going in alone. Because he's because he's a goddamn Batman, for crying out loud. Yeah, and, and they point Aquaman says to the Spectre, oh, aren't you going to stop him? And Spectre goes, nah, he's just, just flesh and blood. His capture won't make any difference. I mean, Which, if, the- if I... Yeah, I'd feel a little offended, but you know. But he's 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 right. The 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 starfish things don't seem to get. They get the power, but they don't seem to get much else from their hosts. So just getting Batman means, oh look, they've just got an Olympic level athlete. Yes, and I guess if he's if he's turned into a mindless zombie, they're not really getting the keen intellect of Batman either. It would be no better to them than if they took Usain Bolt. Yes. Although, come to think of it, an army of zombified Usain Bolts would actually be quite terrifying. Well, an army of them, sure. <laughs> an army <laughs> of them. Get Usain Bolt to the genetics labs quickly. Just the one, <laughs> though. more of them. Just the one, though. I reckon I can handle. Sure, he's faster than me, but I can hide. I, I choose to believe that out there, there is like an entire separated family of different Usains, and there's like Usain Fire, Usain Ice, <laughs> Usain Earth. You know, they're just waiting to unite and form Captain Planet. Captain Usain Planet. Captain Usain Planet. Um, but yeah, so um, Superman, ever the clear thinker, 
just reckons, well, this is obvious then. You know, if if a, if a conqueror isn't interested in non-superpowered people, then just take our powers away. Yeah. You know, then if then we can go in and help and we won't be endangering, you know, the world, reality, all past and future. Yeah, why not? Easy. And, I'm Superman. And again, pure Superman here, because the Spectre basically says, I mean, I can, but why would you do that? This makes absolutely no sense. And Superman just says, Batman's not going in there alone. That's a good enough reason for me. Ah, because he's Superman. He's so good. I love Superman. Yeah, and again, without thinking, Superman is willing to just sacrifice everything that makes him him to help Batman and save the day. Like, for him, it's not even an issue. It's not even a question. It's just a a fact. Like, I'm not letting my friend go in there alone. And the League follow him. Like, yeah, to a one. The powerless League are transported to Blue Valley by the Spectre. Yeah, and suddenly they are now standing um, on the ground outside this big skyscraper, absolutely surrounded by an army of zombified citizens. Like, just thousands of them. Do you notice that the uh, they're in the, a clear spot that's sort of almost shaped like a star? You know, you're right, PJ. I d- oh, as in, as in, yes, I do notice that, but only because you brought it up. So, yes. <laughs> a, a, good, a good point, PJ. Um... Yeah, and, and this is quite a nice moment because as they as they step out of the Spectre's cloak, Superman goes, stare them down and stay confident. And Batman just goes, in other words, you're in my territory now. <laughs> as Superman points out, though, these, these creatures know that they're the Justice League. They know how powerful they are. They don't know that they do not have their powers. Mm. And, of course, to take away the powers of the JLA is basically something that only the Wrath of God could do Anyway, like this is because their powers do not come from the same source. I mean, Aquaman is basically a different species of human. Jean is an alien. So you'd need some serious reality manipulation to make make them boring, basically. What I find interesting here, though, is, is Jean's powers are taken away, but he doesn't revert to his natural form. So it's like the Spectre takes his powers away and leaves him stuck in his human-ish form. So presumably then he can't get out of that at the moment either. That is true. That is true. I guess I guess he didn't want to see like a naked Martian. I guess he was like, hey, I'm the only guy who gets to run around like in minimal clothing right now. <laughs> it's it's just a, a, an interesting little quirk that I, I enjoy. Mm. I guess Kyle could have just taken the just, ring off. Yeah, he could have just left his ring on the satellite. But I, I, I think and I think this is something that's um, established in later on in both Green Lantern and in uh, in JLA. Kyle does get paranoid about taking the ring off and leaving it in places where he unattended. Well, God, you would though, wouldn't you? Yeah. You, oh, yeah. Most powerful be- weapon in the universe, and I'll just leave it on this table. I, it's been two years, and I'm terrified of losing my wedding ring every time. <laughs> every time I leave the house, like it's and that doesn't control the fate of the universe. It's terrifying. Doesn't it though? Well, my universe, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, so the the JLA just kind of walk into the building, and Wonder Woman and Superman kind of whisper to each other. And uh, Wonder Woman's like, uh, this is a little too easy. I was expecting a bit more resistance. And yeah, Superman reckons it's because, you know, they were expecting a metahuman assault. They want us inside. It's basically a trap. Like, we, we, we know we're walking into a trap. And then we get the moment. We get a close-up on Superman's forehead. He's nervous. 
He's sweating. Superman is sweating. Which is... That's not a thing that happens, basically. No. That That is a problem. No, and so uh, one of the star conquered... I, th- I presume this is a security guard for the building rather than one of the cops. Um, notices the sweat, shouts that there's something wrong, reaches for his gun, and shoots uh, Superman. Yeah, and... Um... And he's holding the gun sideways because I guess kind of zombie alien starfish know they want to look cool at the same time. Well, they're big fans of John Woo, so... <laughs> oh, oh, of course, of course. And yeah, so it's not often you see Superman getting shot in a in a comic. Um, but yeah, he's kind of shot twice in the shoulder. Like, it's pretty shocking, actually. <laughs> it really is. And he, he, he reacts to it. And Superman doesn't experience pain normally like this so it is it's a strange one but because he's superman he still just sort of grits it you know aquaman goes oh superman you've been hit and superman is straight away don't mind about me they figured out we're powerless we just have to make sure batman gets through at all costs so even when he's been shot in the shoulder and is writhing in pain superman is thinking bigger picture have you read uh vimana rama by grant grant morrison okay Little side diversion. It's a, it's a fun little superhero, uh, Bhagavad Gita kind of Indian mythology kind of tale. Um, and there's a character in it who's basically like an ancient Indian kind of Superman. Like he's basically Superman. Like he's pristine, perfect, incredible, godlike abilities. And at one point he loses his powers and suddenly he's like, He's like, oh god, what is this? What is this I'm feeling? Like the wind on my skin. It's agony. Like he, he's <laughs> never experienced anything. So like a leaf brushes his head and he's like on the floor, kind of like screaming in agony, just because he's never <laughs> actually touched anything properly. That was pretty cool. So yeah, there we go. Superman takes it a little better than that. Cause yeah, he's still Superman, even though he's being shot. And uh yeah, he's dealing with it. He's coping. So this is when Flash arrives on the scene and basically takes down the entire league. Because he's the Flash. (laughs) Yeah, and because they have no powers. Superman punches out Kyle, stomps on Superman's face, rams Aquaman's head into a wall, decks John, and then super speed smacks Wonder Woman to the ground. Yeah, it's not even a fight. Like To call it a fight is actually embarrassing. Like The only thing the league had going for them is basically covering for Batman, who is halfway up an elevator shaft, kind of climbing climbing the cable. Now, here's the thing, though. Flash takes them down, and he says, wait a moment, I count one, two, three, four, five, six of them. So, is this the starfish talking and including Flash in the count? Yes. He's counting himself. Has to be. Has to be. Because otherwise, that's a mistake. <laughs> Yes, maybe, 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 yes, maybe it's Star Conqueror talking and he's referring <laughs> to himself. Um, but yeah, um, so basically up in the penthouse or somewhere, it's, it looks like a, a nice apartment, or it yeah. was once, uh, Batman just kicks the door in because he's Batman. And there's a great big kind of quasi-biological, technological kind of, tower thing in the middle of the room um, with lots of star shaped um panels in it yeah like if this was a video game 
it, I'd be thinking that's the thing I want to blow up yes. to kind of like take control of the situation. And that's what Batman's thinking. And he actually uh, says to it, you're prepared for a metahuman attack. Nothing in here will have any effect on me. And straight away, I'm like, well, there's a pot he could smash over your head there. He could drop that bookcase on you. Quite a lot of these things will have an effect on you, Batman. And I like also how Batman is taking a moment here to try and intimidate the giant alien hive mind yes. kind of thing. <laughs> you know, he's giving it a chance to give up before, oh, I don't know, he'll, he'll find a face he can punch. Like, this thing doesn't have one single body, but he'll find it and he will He will just beat the crap out of it if he has to. And I guess it works because he gets the Flash monologuing. Yeah. And, yeah, the Flash is basically literally like running rings around Batman just proper grandstanding going like you know i'm smarter than you i'm millions of years older than you uh submit to my absolute control sounding a lot like a villain sounding a lot like a villain yeah um and he goes you know i could pick the flesh from your bones in a picosect and i could i could vibrate my hand through your skull and burst it like a watermelon you know i, I could do you know just get to the point man because but then, uh, yeah he's, he's, he's given batman time that's the mistake and yeah, because it's too late. It's too late. And Batman has whipped out a handy-dandy uh, mask. Yep. And he says, uh, I've sabotaged the air conditioning system. Welcome to minus 10 and dropping fast. And then he starts punching the Flash. Just wails on him completely. Yeah, it's... um, Yeah, this is Batman therapy. This is like, <laughs> really? Um, it's like when he's put Aquaman's head in the fish tank in Midsummer's Nightmare. That's just how Batman deals with problems. Yeah, and I, I choose to believe that Batman is aware that Flash's hypermetabolism will allow him to recover of course he from having he's, the crap beaten out of him. He's Batman, of course he knows. He thinks of everything. Um, yeah, so he just keeps punching the crap out of Wally. Um, <laughs> While saying to him, remember who you are, uh, this thing is going to win unless you come through, remember who you are. And then Wally does. He says, my name, my name, is, my name is Wally West... And, oh God, and then he rips the starfish off and he says, I'm the Flash, the fastest man alive. Yeah. Damn right he is. And there's a lot of pus and there's a lot of gross oh, yeah, slime. It's, it's disgusting. Yeah, uh, it's pretty disgusting. And, yeah, and uh, basically, um, yeah, uh, now Flash is back. Batman's like, okay, get us out of here. You know, um, uh, most... Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, so basically he's saying like uh, we're making it, we're ma- I've made it so cold in here. Sorry, it took me a bit, it took me a moment there to kind of get my brain in gear. Yeah, so Batman <laughs> has made it so cold that the uh, computer is essentially starting to shut down, like that. That that's that's what all that complex techno babble is basically saying. It's very cold in here. Yeah, and and Wally gets it. He says the the probe's computer goes berserk. Superconductivity. I know Barry Allen and I talked a lot. And Wally just starts wrecking the joint. Um, but the the probes, the little starfish, they're coming as well. Batman says, it's stabilizing. Do as much damage as you can. And then you get a lovely panel of uh, Flash running around the room. Lots of strobed images of the Flash around the room, trashing the place. And then a close-up of... He's got a look of glee on his face. He's enjoying getting his revenge here. The only thing, The only thing I would raise here, because that is an absolutely stunning picture of... And again, I think Howard Porter is having so much fun here. Like, just a great picture of the Flash wrecking some shit. And yet Batman does suggest that the metal, he has reduced the temperature to the point where it's near absolute zero. 
Am I reading that correct? Yeah. How how good is that air conditioning system? I mean, he's tampered with it, remember? So he put some kind of bat air conditioning reducer <laughs> device on it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, yeah, I mean, he's Batman, for crying out loud. Mm. Uh, and and then, yeah, we see the building from the exterior, and um, the giant starship explodes, and Kyle, uh, who is, you know, doesn't have a face hugger on him, um, Phew. screams and goes, Wally, which I guess is, is nice. I guess Kyle cares. Yeah, and the, the League are like, oh, God, Batman and Flash are inside, but they're not, because the Flash is really fast. Yeah, and maybe he looks a little kind of haggard, but he's okay. tired. Bit tired. Yeah, <laughs> you would be though. And yeah, um, ev- all the all the civilians are back to normal, and but Kyle is like, okay, um, yeah, I guess we won, but <laughs> we, you know, we're not the Justice League anymore. Like we don't have powers. So, but look, look in the background, just to the left of Wonder Woman. It looks like people are hold, they're, they're smiling as they hold up starfish. Are they going to keep them as souvenirs? Because that doesn't seem safe. Yeah, I mean, you you might, I guess. I mean, presumably, presumably, PJ, there are a ton of these starfish now just lying around. Oh, God, people are going to cook them and eat them, aren't they? And who knows, maybe that will become relevant later. What? Later on in the series, who knows? Um... So yeah, the, the Justice League have won the day, but they've lost all their powers, with as, the exception as, of the Flash. As Kyle says, Flash is the only one who even smells like he's got superpowers anymore. Uh, but then Spectre shows up and says, no, I don't need to take them permanently, it wasn't a punishment. Here you go, have them back. Which is nice. <laughs> Just wrapping everything up in, an, in, a, in a neat bow. Yeah. And again, Kyle is very happy because his ring is working again. And... Um, Wally pats him on the shoulder and goes, "Ah, I guess there's no getting rid of you, huh? (laughs) It's that love-hate relationship that, um, you know, let's not spoil anything, but it's just, it's going to develop into a full-blown bromance, guys. It's beautiful to witness. Although it is kind of odd because they seem on better terms here than they maybe are at the start of Justice League Volume 1. Yeah. um, I don't know. I think... I, I can't remember the chronology of the stories that they, in their own titles, where they meet as well for the first time, if that's going to be before or after this, but I think it is very much a, from the beginning a love-hate thing. They recognise... There's a Green Lantern story where, I believe, where they first meet, where Flash does say to him, look, there's sort of a tradition, Flash, Green Lantern, that's a team. Not sure about you yet, but we got to try it. And I they, think that's that's what's going on here. And And... Yeah, like I said, they're not there yet. But as you said, they, they do get there. Yeah. Like, it, they are the the Green Lantern Flash partnership for the 90s. And yeah, it takes a while, but it does feel genuine. It does feel kind of earned when they're it actually... Does. Like, they seem to genuinely work very well together later And on. it's one of my favourite things about Morrison's writing on JLA is how he progresses that relationship. Um. But yeah, I, I guess to just very quickly wrap up the issue, because we're, we're so close to the end, um, with the JLA, their powers restored, and Superman basically goes to thank the Spectre, and the Spectre goes, what I did was not for you, Superman. The future is my only concern. 
it should be safe in the hands of the Justice League. And the team pose as the spectre walks off into the sun. And then presumably five minutes later, Aquaman goes, right, I quit. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good point. (laughs) Yeah, Aquaman immediately quits and then gets really pissy with Wonder Woman. Yeah. (laughs) when, When they next bump into each other. I guess. Yeah. I, I guess it's a weird one because it was, it, it you know being set before the main series, but but being clearly written. Oh, I don't know. Let's say six months later. Yeah. Like it, it, it's it's a it's a soft bit of retconning. Like it doesn't it doesn't affect anything. It doesn't take away from anything. But yeah, like in a in a weird way, I guess Morrison is maybe like more comfortable with the characters at this point. And he's writing a story set before. So, I don't know. They might seem friendlier than they actually would be at that point in time. Yeah, I think so. It's it's weird. That story always feels to me like, at first glance, it's pretty disposable, actually, as far yeah. as the whole JLA storyline goes. You know, um, Midsummer's Nightmare is a separate thing to the rest of the series, but it... it it does carry through. There's, there's very, it's very key in the whole grand story. At first glance, that one just doesn't feel like it is. But then, when you read through it again, it does set up some stuff. There are things mm. in it that are, are picked up on later on. Um, but again, in slightly different ways to how they're presented here, it, it, it's an odd little story. I've got, I've got to say, like I, as somebody who devoured the main series like over and over again it's it's a, it's a series i return to all the time this story is actually one i've i've never owned like i've i've never had a proper hard hard copy of this one and i i i think this is really i've only read it properly like a few times in my life like once when i did discover it a few years ago and i i, I read it quickly because it's not a long story no um but it's it's certainly not a full twenty two pages, and revisiting it for this, uh, for for this for a show with you, it it was it was wonderful because it's like um, I don't know, it'd be like discovering like a lost Beatles album or something. It's like yes. it's more of what you love from that point in history. Like it, it's not somebody trying to recreate the magic years later. It's it was there at the time. It was just kind of tangential to the main series. Like it was it was a joy. Like I think it's such a such a fun little story. Like it, it's yeah, I'm a big fan of it. Genuinely big fan. I think there's um when you go through the JLA Secret Files and Origins, there are at least two more issues of it. Um, the main stories of which issue two, the main story for that is presented in the Strength in Numbers trade. And then issue three, the main story of that is in the Tower of Babel trade because those stories are vital to the ongoing JLA stories being told at the time. This one doesn't appear in any of the main trades. I have it in a trade that collects um, the main stories from the Big Seven Secret Origins books. Mm. So it's got the JLA one and then it's got the Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Flash and Green Lantern's main stories in it. But it was never put in a main JLA book. I wonder if it may have been collected at a later date in maybe like one of the JLA like ultimate collections or something like that. Like they, I think in later years they did repackage the trades as like bigger graphic novels. Yeah. If I'm not dreaming that I have a suspicion I've seen it in the back of 
a trade paperback at one okay. point. But again, I think a much later reissue, which I didn't own because I've got these. Well, again, not quite as vintage as your your copies. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I've got. I think I've maybe got like second edition copies of the trades. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas I've got the the first editions, and then after Strength in Numbers, I bought the other ones just as they were coming out. Yeah, it's um. Do we do we want to um? Do we want to talk about the Star Conqueror? We do. Um, because one of my th- favorite things here is Morrison's telling his version of the origin of this league, and he's using. It's Starro, Starro the World Conqueror, who was the villain in Justice League of America issue one. Now, I'm so glad you're here, PJ, because I I have so many questions for you. Um, Firstly, is this the first appearance of Starro post-crisis? Um... I think so. I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent on it. I think Starro is one of those um, characters or creatures or whatever you want to describe him as. Um, it's used sparingly. It doesn't turn up a lot in comics. It's it's a pretty famous creation purely because it was. It's on right there on the cover of Justice League of America issue one. Um, it's not the first foe the Justice League ever faced on their very first appearance. The team was already together and they'd go back and retell the origin later on. Mm. Um, but it's the first one readers ever saw the Justice League face. And I can't think of many other, there are a few, but not many other appearances pre-crisis. And I can't think of any post-crisis. Now, I don't pretend I've read every single DC comic that was published between Crisis on Infinite Earths issue 12 and... um, (laughs) JLA Secret Files and Origins 1. So I might be wrong. And if someone Why would like to tell not, us. What, <laughs> what are you even here for? <laughs> well, here's a, here's a question for you. Um, those vintage, classic, old school JLA issues or issue with Starro, Starro looks quite different. Starro is blue. Am I right? In, well, with, this is what is mm. interesting. Yeah. Um, you don't get the main Starro in this story. You just get the little Star Conquerors that he that clamped to the people's faces. Yeah. Um, when DC revisited Starro later, and the main Starro appears, it looks very different to the one from the um, 1960s? 1960, I think? 60, 61 Justice League? Yeah. Um, it looks very different to that. It looks a lot more like a, a bigger version of the little ones on the faces here. Yeah, kind has, of green, yeah. stubbier arms. And it has eye. those little ones with it. But after that, Kurt Busick then had Starro appear in JLA versus Avengers. I, I was wondering, yes, I was wondering if you'd bring that up. He yeah. appears in the Marvel Universe and fights the Avengers, and you've got the little ones taking over people in the same way with the f- clamping on the faces. But the big Starro is that early 1960 big grey and white classic version of it. So... Starro seems to be a character in flux, um, but he's a character who every time it appears, I I actually really love what they do with it. I think the the some of Starro's stories are some of my absolute favourites. I I, I, say, I feel exactly the same way, and I, I've I've actually I've been rereading JLA Avengers in the past week, and um, again, sorry if if people haven't read it, they probably will be thinking. This what the hell are we talking about? But there is an utterly amazing double page spread 
when Scarrow appears in the Marvel Universe, because this is a crossover, and Starro is ra- is above New York City, raining down thousands of these little kind of star probes, and the Avengers are fighting it, and it is stunning. And there's something so weird and iconic about that image. It's quite unsettling, like this giant... Starfish are creepy. Like, whether yeah. they're the stubby Starro or the really, like, long-armed blue and purple one... It's it's creepy as hell to see like this giant starfish above the city, kind of floating in the air. It's it's a it's a striking image. Yeah, it really is. And every Starro story has that at least one moment, which is just this incredible image that really sells the whole story. Like I think in in this one we've just read, it's probably that first time you see it clamped onto the face of the Flash. Uh, but then when you get the big Starro in other stories. Oh, they do some really good stuff with that. In, um, yeah, I love what Busick does with it in JLA Avengers. I love what happens with him in DC later on. Um, it, Yeah, it's a really interesting creation, and I quite like that it's used sparingly as well. Yes, because I, I, I've often thought that there are only like... Oh, um, this is a gross oversimplification, but like there are really only like five superhero stories, I think. <laughs> and yeah, like there's these little kind of tropes you can return to and if you were to create a new superhero team tomorrow i think it's fair to say you would eventually have a storyline where your heroes face if not a zombie horde there'd be some kind of mass mind control kind of thing i do feel like the hive style enemy is a really powerful trope which is used again and again and again and i think Scarrow is possibly the best or the purest kind of you know like Starro is such a good idea and having like the face hugger starfish is so iconic and so good i don't think it will ever be topped and i think everyone else would just be kicking themselves that they didn't invent it it's so good what i also love as well is it's it's not just the zombie story it's also at the same time one of those cosmic level Yes, things coming to Earth, this big unknown that that you you don't know what it is, you can't really reason with it. What is it? And it's just coming from the depths, and you don't you. There's no no way of knowing, and and leaning into the absurdity of it, like the idea that a giant starfish from space is ridiculous. So let's double down. Like, yeah. don't be ashamed of it. Like, run with it and. Yeah, it is absurd, and it's terrifying. <laughs> like, it's so strange. What I do find interesting, though, in the in this story, uh, Secret Files and Origins, is um, this, to my knowledge, is the only time we see Starro have any kind of technological aspect to it. So you've got the star-shaped spaceship and all the technology inside it that the Flash wrecks that then is what stops the, the facehugger starfish from controlling people anymore and and just makes them inert. And I don't think that's an aspect that's ever seen again, to my knowledge. It's no, just it, this story. It's a weird one, isn't it? I, I Again, not to, to not get too spoilerific, I do feel there's a little reference later in this series in JLA where they refer to the probes as being, having some kind of technological aspects, but... It, it is it is an odd one because it gives the impression of being a purely biological thing. Like and, yeah, yeah. And Spectre does say as well, doesn't he? This is a probe for the Conqueror 
in deep space. So it's some kind of advanced scout. Yeah, maybe there is just that. The, the advanced scout is technological in nature to be followed up by the big star. It's interesting because it the menace of it as well kind of suggesting it's it's very it's it's a bit lovecraftian it's a bit lovecraftian because yeah. the yeah. idea that they face something gross alien and also a little bit deep sea you know a little bit kind of deep sea horror yeah and they defeated it but they didn't really face it in its true aspect like they only kind of cut off one finger of yeah. like this giant otherworldly threat like it's kind of nice because it does sow the seeds that there's maybe more to come well it's when you look at it chronologically and you go midsummer's nightmare and then you go secret files and origins that's two stories in a row which end with the justice league having defeated one threat but that threat then also points out there's something bigger coming so mm. they've now got two big things on the way <laughs> I mean, I, I think, again, I think Nuclon is just, you know, the luckiest man alive. <laughs> you know, can you imagine? <laughs> He's like, I was not cut out for this. <laughs> um, do you have any... Uh, so, yeah, Starro aside, because Starro is brilliant. Do you have any kind of just final thoughts on the issue as a whole and what it kind of represents? Um... As I say, I think it's one of the, it's a weird mix of a fun little disposable, unnecessary story and an absolute key to the whole series. Yeah, I think it's I think it also shows the creative team having fun. I think so. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know whether that's because it is a side story. I don't know whether that came with a degree of like. It's in continuity, but it's not in continuity, if you know what I mean. Like, it's kind of... It happens, but it's it's outside the main run. And I think, it I seems think so also, liberating, in a way. I think there's also an element of, of... I think this is what you get when you get Morrison working with Mark Miller. I think that Miller, I think, injects a bit more fun into what Morrison tries to do. If you look at Skrull Kill Crew, as an example... Mm. that they did for Marvel before JLA. That book's just a lot of fun. It's very silly. It's a lot of fun. And that was co-written by them. Their run on The Flash has a lot of the big ideas that Morrison brings and then a lot of fun injected by by Miller. I think at this point in his career, and you know, you can talk endlessly about where he goes later on and whether that's good or not, but at this point in his career, I think there's a lot of fun in the stories Mark Miller does. This is the Mark Miller who's just come off Sonic the Comic. So Yeah. Oh God, yeah. It's so yeah, oh my life. Yeah, what a strange point in history. Yeah. Cause because yeah, I think I think you and I have talked at times about about Mark Miller's uh, about Mark Miller's career and, and the points at which we have or haven't kind of connected with it. Hmm. And there is in the main run of JLA, there is a story coming up later which we'll get to in time, which is written by Mark Miller. So a, a kind of early career Mark Miller. And I think it's one of the best things he's ever written. Like, I think it has genuinely a lot of heart, a lot of spirit to it. And I mean, if I'm honest, I, I think the 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 biggest kind of praise, one of the be best pieces of praise that I can say about this issue is I can't see the seams. Yeah. I can't see the points at which one writer switches to another or back and forth. Like, it feels like a very complete little project. 
Yeah, no, really I don't is. know how it. I don't know how it was written. I don't know if they did a page on, a page off, but it feels in keeping with the main series. Like it feels like an authentic voice of what JLA was at this time. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it. You get the just really pure moments for each for each character. You get pure Batman moment. You get a pure Superman moment. The Flash, Green Lantern, they all get it. Even the Spectre gets <laughs> gets some lovely pure Spectre. Because don't forget, Spectre has been in both the Justice Society and the Justice League. I which again I know like intellectually, but I can't process emotionally like. I know there's times when the Spectre has been more and less human. Yeah. But it's hard for me to imagine him as a regular hero and maybe having having weaknesses. Because he, he seems so powerful, like so godlike. I think there's and I might I might be getting this wrong, but I think at this point in the comics, he doesn't have a human host. Like yes. when he's with the JSA and the the or the Justice League. That's when Jim Corrigan is part of the equation. Yes. Uh, and humanizing the Spectre to some degree. I think at this point, he is pure Spectre. And of course, we will see a bit more of the Spectre as the series goes on. Yeah. And in a couple of different incarnations. And I know down the line, he becomes fused with um, Hal Jordan, does he not? Yes, that's during the um, Day of Judgment crossover event that I don't think the main JLA series... There's a little epilogue to it, I think, in the main JLA series, I believe written by J.M. DeMatteis, just before World War III. Um, mm. There's a reference to it in the main series. That's the closest we get. I think yeah. uh, we see like one little throwaway line from Superman. Although I, I, I actually bought every single issue of that crossover because I was buying other DC books at the time that it did move into, like Young Justice and Supergirl. And um, I think I was also buying The Flash at the time. Yeah. And, and it moved through all of those. So I actually bought every single issue of the Day of Judgment crossover. But um, yeah, it's a weird one. I, did it, I mean, quick summary, did it do it for you? Um, so you can't quick summary these DC stories. They're ridiculous. <laughs> Um, Anarchy, that was another book I was buying at the time that had it because he meets the haunted tank. Um, so Day of Judgment is I, uh, hell. I think Neron's involved and hell is is coming to Earth and it's all because the Spectre doesn't have a human host keeping him in check so Neron's able to take control. Was that so a, they, sorry, PJ, was that the storyline in which a ton of villains sold their souls to Neron and gained new powers? It might be. It's been a while, but that might well be right. Um, but I think it's all all because Neron's able to control the Spectre. So they need to find a new human host for the Spectre, but they can't get anyone from heaven because they're all too good. And they can't get anyone from hell because they're all too bad. You don't want them in control of the Spectre. So they have to go to a limbo place in between where people, who, who, people whose lives were exactly 50-50 good and bad are. And one of those people is Hal Jordan. They meet him as Parallax and then in limbo and then he says if we're doing this i'm not doing this as parallax and he becomes classic green lantern and then at the end he they he takes control of the specter and that solves everything and it's just weird <laughs> because comics everybody because comics yeah uh, you got you got to pick and choose your battles sometimes i think and uh yeah and and don't worry too much about trying to keep track of all the continuity because PJ's here to do it for you. 
<laughs> as best I can. And I am regretting selling all those comics now because I, I sold my whole collection a few years oh. ago and I need to dip into them for future episodes of this. <laughs> we all have that moment, that moment of weakness where we, you know... Didn't have space, needed our... money. Yeah, yeah. And then you slowly spend the rest of your life buying it back. Shut up, John. You don't know that about me. I totally am. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm definitely not looking at five short boxes kind of stacked on the floor next to me. <laughs> issue upon issue spilling out everywhere. Um, but yeah, enough about our problems. Um, PJ, this... I, have have we have we wrung this towel dry of all the 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 rich storytelling content which is now slu- sluiced down the drain? Uh, I believe we did. Yeah, great. Well, I love I love analogies. Um, this was an absolute delight. I very much enjoyed this issue. And where are we going? Where are we going next? Um, well, we're, I believe next episode we're going to um, my one blind spot in this entire run. It's yes. the one issue I have not read. You're finally, you're finally in my territory now. <laughs> it's a weird one because it, it is kind of like an original graphic novel, uh, JLA Wildcats, but it's it's kind of like it's longer than an individual issue, but it's not quite full graphic novel length. It's like a, it's like an oddity. It's like somewhere in the middle. Um, so I think we may have to possibly split it into a couple of episodes to to get through it. Oh, was it one of those prestige format crossovers they did? Yeah, kind of. Like it was released in its entirety. I don't believe it was ever, you know, serialized. Because I, I had two of those uh, com- intercompany crossover JLA prestige format books that I also no longer have: JLA Witchblade and uh, JLA versus Predator, both of which were awful. <laughs> Um, but they were like these prestige format books, so like oh fifty pages or something. God, yeah. I was going to try and pull like two f- imaginary crossovers out of my head, and you just beat me to it. I don't think I could have topped either of those. That is so random. They were just both. They were both really bad. Did you now? I know I've, I keep bringing up Warren Ellis and the Wildstorm universe, but um, were you aware that there was an Aliens crossover in the Wildstorm universe? I was not. Well, at the time, Warren Ellis was writing uh, Stormwatch, which was um, basically he picked it up and it was a, well, um, it was a middling 90s superhero comic. You know, I hope I'm not insulting anyone there, but Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone would claim it was a bestseller, you know. Uh, But Warren Ellis took it over and he basically rebranded the team as a united nations strike force and really brought in kind of it was kind of like an early days ultimates you know what i mean like um very down-to-earth realistic military-based superheroes it's very good um and i believe the story goes after doing that for a few books he was basically told that we've secured a licensing deal with Aliens, or whoever, whichever studio owns Aliens. That was Dark Horse in the comics at the time had Aliens. There you go. I think Dark they still War- do, yeah. So you have to do a Stormwatch Aliens crossover story. And apparently, I'm I'm probably making all this up now, apparently Warren Ellis hated the idea, <laughs> and, and the only condition he would do it on was if they'd let him kill off pretty much everyone. <laughs> and, and so they let him do it. So in canon, the... Stormwatch team comes to an end 
because of an alien infestation. And from the ashes of that, uh, the authority was born. That's so weird. Yeah, and if it weren't for a weird, a weird crossover with aliens, um, yeah, we'd never get the authority. See, some of those Dark Horse crossovers, I do re- like the first Batman versus Predator is brilliant. That's a really good book. Um, and there's a really good Superman versus Aliens uh, crossover where Superman loses his powers and gets face hugged. Does he get chest burst? It's uh, no, because no. he um, he loses his powers because he's in deep space. So they gradually fade, and then he gets face hugged. And then what he does is, as the alien is trying to burst out of his chest. He flies a spaceship as close to the yellow sun as he can and leaps out of it and eventually manages to get his invul- kickstart his invulnerability, forces the alien back in and regurgitates it. It is grim and I love it. <laughs> just when you think just when you think Superman can't surprise you anymore. <laughs> but yeah, the, the JLA Predator one was awful. I, I I mean like Batman Predator I can see, but JLA Predator? I mean... Um, the uh, I can't remember which... One of the evil alien races in DC kidnaps some Predators and give them the powers of the Justice League. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. What a shame. Yeah. On that stellar note, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should call it a day. Let's um, do it. Uh, ma- a massive thank you to Gavin Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork. And Elliot Red for doing our theme tune. And everyone's details, including uh, PJ and Mines. Mines? I'm a yeah. writer. Yours. Uh, Yours, thank you. Yeah. Uh, both our social media details are found in the description of the episode if you'd like to give us a follow. Um, PJ, is there any more to say? No. Right. PJ, what's our amazing sign off then? Our absolute killer sign off. John, I'm, I'm not doing a sign off for you. Uh, the future is my only concern. It's safe in the hands of the JLA cast. Mm-hmm.